0: Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily We are continuing to read They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry Would like to ask everybody tuning in To please share a link to this episode On whichever social media platform you may frequent Previously on Rockford Reading Daily We continued reading chapter one Of They Can't Kill Us All We got a, a brief history of some of the racial discrimination and racial disparities, racial inequities that exist in the St. Louis area. We spoke about the commonalities that exist in some of those racial disparities and inequalities in St. Louis and the ones that existed in Milwaukee in the book Evicted and the ones that existed in Chicago in the book High Risers and ones that we've read about in other places in the United States of America throughout our Rockford reading series and we spoke about how commonly throughout time this has been the issue of racial inequality, racial discrimination has been something that has been a constant for black people in this country. We spoke about some of the history of police shootings that had taken place in St. Louis. We learned about the state attorney that was in charge of the case, in charge of cases, and in charge of prosecuting cases in. In St. Louis, we learn about how rare it is for police officers to be prosecuted for these shootings and how even more how it was even more rare for them to be convicted. So, with that being said, let's continue reading They Can't Kill Us All, Chapter 1. Much of my job as a reporter consists of desperate and, more often than not, Failed attempts to convince people with no reason to trust me that this is exactly what they should do. A fellow reporter once remarked to me that a reporter deals in the extremes, showing up on what is either the best or the worst day of your life, stepping up to your doorstep to find either elation or pain. We ring your phone the morning after you've claimed the winning Powerball ticket, and we show up, notebook tucked in our back pocket, the day after your mother or brother has been killed. Maybe it was a car accident, or a murder, or a police shooting. How did you find out and will you tell us more about them we're so sorry for your loss oh and by the way you don't happen to have a color photo do you it's not an exact science sometimes those closest to a news story are eager to talk to you and every other reporter and other times just to one or two lucky souls who happen to show up with their notebook at the exact right moment other times no matter what the technique no number of attempts or approaches will convince someone to submit to an interview. But every reporter works their own advantages, developed by trial and error. I knew immediately which tack I'd take with Netta Elsey, whose trust later became one of my advantages when seeking interviews with other residents and activists. Netta was deeply suspicious of the media, not unlike many of the families and friends of police shooting victims I had encountered before. So often, distrust of police was matched, if not exceeded, by deep suspicion of the media. And very often that suspicion was born from a moment in their past. And in my experience, a man or woman who has been burned or betrayed by the media wants one thing, not a correction or a rehabilitative article. They want to be heard, to be able to explain the injustice they believed was dealt to them so that their pain is validated. Netta's personal distrust of the media began earlier that year, just two weeks after her mother's death. Sitting on her aunt's couch that afternoon, surfing social media, she saw a Facebook post she didn't think could be true. Quote, R.I.P. Stephen, end quote. Well that might be Stefan. R.I.P. Stefan, end quote. She got the phone call from another mutual friend. It was true Stefan Avery Hart was dead. Just weeks after losing her mother, she had lost a close friend. Netta was shattered. They had met almost five years earlier. When one of her closest friends began dating one of his. As the friend groups began to merge, the two found that they just clicked. First, text each other when their friends were meeting up to make sure the other would be attending. Then they make sure they linked up any time Netta was back in town from school or over a holiday. Eventually, Stefan began inviting Netta with him to the highlight of his week, Sunday night drag racing in downtown St. Louis. Netta remembers Stefan as a showman, a clown, who would go out of his way to make everyone laugh as they sat around someone's living room or basement or when they head out to a bar or club or restaurant. He was the friend group's Mr. Fix-It, getting much of his money from working odd jobs on cars and buying old beater vehicles, fixing them up and reselling them. When you talk to his friends now, one of the first things they all recall is that Stefan had a hustle about him. While everyone else had upgraded the smartphones, Stefan was still carrying around an old black flip phone. Quote, as long as it rings and I can keep getting my money, it works. End quote. Stephen would, Stephen would shout as his friends would burst into laughter each time his dated ringtone would interrupt a hangout. The police said every heart had fled from a traffic stop, prompting a police chase that included a spike strip and a helicopter. When every heart crashed his car, he allegedly jumped from it and ran with a gun in his hand. Then... Having trapped him in an alleyway, the officer said they saw him raise the gun in their direction. Pieces by local television stations often mistakenly described Avery Hart as a felon, but his only major crime had been fleeing the police during what ended up being his fatal encounter. Otherwise, Avery Hart had no criminal record other than a few unpaid traffic tickets and a misdemeanor marijuana charge. Articles published on the websites of several St. Louis television stations repeated the erroneous charge, and a sea of online commenters called him a thug, a lowlife, someone who deserved to be killed, and whom the world was better without. Quote, the comment section was so horrible, end quote. never recalled as we discussed Steph's death, death more than a year later. Quote, that was my first time really realizing that these racist people from the internet are real life people. This person saying these horrible things about my dead friend could be my neighbor, end quote. But Stephan Avery Hart had the misfortune of being a black man shot and killed by the police before Ferguson. His killing drew almost no media scrutiny besides the occasional article in the Riverfront Times, a scrappy weekly newspaper in St. Louis, which continued to follow the case. Avery Hart's mother, Stacy Hill, was sitting at home when she got the phone call telling her that the St. Louis police had shot her only son. The 54-year-old mother had spent her entire life in St. Louis, she still works at a local grocery store decorating cakes for birthdays and graduations and funerals. Stefan had been on the way to an auto parts store to pick up supplies for one of his mechanic jobs. His mother still says he should have been a race car driver, so much did he love driving fast from the first time he ever sat behind a wheel. And he was driving fast on that day when the flashing lights pulled up behind him. He had no criminal record and, his family insist was carrying his gun legally but he did commit a crime. He ran from the officers who tried to pull him over. Hill wishes her son hadn't run, but she understands why he did. Black residents of St. Louis all fear the traffic stop. Departments in greater St. Louis are known for using them to milk revenue for their city's bottom line, often stacking multiple violations into a single citation. When tickets go unpaid, a warrant is issued. On the day Mike Brown was killed, Ferguson had almost as many active warrants as it did residents. Stefan Hart had an outstanding traffic warrant. After the first call, Stacy Hill raced to the scene of the shooting. Unable to get answers, she tried the hospital where workers and security guards wouldn't tell her if Stefan was dead or alive. After several hours, she went home and waited. Finally, she got a call su- excuse me, finally, she got a call summoning her to the medical examiner's office. Hill was heartbroken, and then she became angry. She read all the headlines calling her only son an ex-kind and a felon. Those same articles declared that Stefan had pointed a gun at the officers chasing him, but she just didn't believe it. The investigation would clear her son. She knew it. But few things move as slowly, under such a unique cloak of darkness, as an investigation into an officer-involved shooting. It was months before she got a call from a St. Louis police sergeant in September 2014. The shooting of Michael Brown had thrust all local police departments under public scrutiny. They wanted to give her an update. Hill says she was told that the initial police story was wrong. Her son had never actually pointed the gun. Rather, he was reaching down to pick it up off the ground when he was shot. Quote, my son deserved to go to jail that day. End quote. Hill still says, quote, he did not deserve to die. End quote. Hill begged the sergeant to have the department issue a new press release to correct the record. She asked for the officers' names and was told that those, too, were unavailable to her. The investigation was ongoing. To date, it still is. She went home and waited. Almost two years after that meeting, she is still waiting. For Netta, the pain that pushed her to protest began privately with the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Jordan Davis, as well as the execution of Troy Davis a Georgia inmate whose appeal of his death sentence became a rallying cry around the same time that the story of Trayvon Martin reached its apex. This private feeling of sorrow was compounded by the two police shootings that would define the next years of Netta's life. One of a man, Stephen Avery Hart, whom she had knew and loved, and the other of a man, Mike Brown, whom she had never known. In February 2016, two years after Stephen was killed and 18 months after the unrest in Ferguson, I called the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department and asked about the status of the investigation into Stefan's shooting. The department continued to refuse to release the names of the police officers involved. They also wouldn't give me any other information about why Stefan had been pulled over or why he had been shot. All they would release in terms of documents was a two-page preliminary police report for which they charged me $6. The investigation into the shooting, which occurred six months before that of Michael Brown, remains active. I called Stacy Hill back and asked her if she had heard anything else. Sometime in 2015, the captain had called her into the police station and told her he had something to give her. During this meeting, he handed over a more than 40-page case file, which included the same two useless pages that I have been given, as well as a full readout of the incident report. The report, which Stacy Hill sent to me via Fed- FedEx the next day, excuse me, the report, which Stacy Hill sent to me via FedEx next day delivery, stated that a St. Louis metropolitan police helicopter began following Avery Hart after he fled the traffic stop around 11.50 a.m. on February 12, 2014. After officers deployed spike strips, the report says Avery Hart ditched his car in the alley and began running with a gun in his hand. Not far behind were two officers now pursuing him on foot. As Stefan ran down another alley, He attempted to throw the gun over a tall wooden fence, but he miscalculated the height. The pistol, according to the account of the shooting given by a police officer who was watching from a helicopter, hit the top of the fence and landed back in the alley at Avery Hart's feet. Initially, Avery Hart kept running. Then he paused, turned around, and bent over to pick the weapon up. At that moment, according to the officer with the bird's eye view, the two officers who had been running after Avery Hart rounded the corner pulled their guns, and opened fire. Quote, We could see the detectives draw their firearms and then the suspect fall to the ground. End quote. John Fur, the, office the, hel- the officer in the helicopter, said in a statement to investigators. Quote, Detectives advised over the radio that shots have been fired. The suspect laid in the alley motionless. End quote. So what actually happened in that alley? Did every heart really threateningly, quote, raise, end quote, the gun at officers? Or was he in the act of picking it up when officers ran up on him, got spooked, and opened fire? Will the officers involved be charged? Probably not. And when will Stacy Hill get some of the answers she so desperately desires? It's unclear if she ever will. And that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter, so let's have a reflection. What really stands out to me is the... The distrust of the media that Wesley Lowry speaks of, and he talks about how oftentimes the distrust of the police for activists comes hands and for community members comes hands in hand in hand with the distrust of the media. And what I have experienced in Rockford in Winnebago County is that most of the time the media echoes whatever it is that the police department puts out or whatever it is that the police department says, or the state's attorney says, and that they become like a satellite for this police department or a propaganda machine for this police department. And that is what makes people uncomfortable and untrustworthy of the media is because instead of seeming as if it's a separate entity from the police department and from the state, it, seems as if it's conspired and working hand in hand with the state. And when you go to different places, that changes in some, in some aspects, you know, every, every specific city has this unique media police department relationship, media state's attorney community relationship. And here partly because there are so few media outlets, there are, there is a relationship that seems to be a, a, symbiotic one where they they're working with each other as opposed to the media being an entity that's forcing the police department or not even forcing but holding the police department to a standard of honesty or holding the state's attorney to a standard of honesty there's been times where the media the information that the media gives is word for word the exact information that the police department or the state's attorney is giving and there's been times where we've, at the May 30th Alliance, specifically, I don't even know if reaching reaching out to the media is the right term, but we've told the media about something from our perspective or our vantage point to be re- to be told back by a, a outlet. Well, that's not what the police say are saying, and we're going to go with what the police are saying. <clears throat> and then a lot of time, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that. But then also when you when you speak about the narrative that the media portrays in this city, a lot of times the narrative that the media portrays is the same narrative that is portrayed by police departments, and that is one of criminalizing victims. That's one of, and when I say that, and I mean the media as a whole. There's always exceptions. I think that Chris Green for the Rockford Register Star has been an, an exception to this. To this to some of the things that i'm saying now where he's challenged what the perceived mainstream thought or mainstream idea was or he's dived deeper into and, que- and and asked more questions about some of these issues and things that he's written and experiences that i've had with him but for the most part a lot of the things that happen is the police say a person was armed and you don't see a heavy pushback from the media to find out if the person truly was armed. I think one of the things that happened in the shooting of Tyrus Jones was because the in 2020 the consciousness was so heightened about the shooting of, of black men that once Tyrus Jones was shot, the media, the 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 narrative that it seemed the media wanted to go with was one of the police department being in the wrong. And so you see more of a pushback and more of heavier questioning during press conferences and things like that, in my opinion, as opposed to some of the shootings that would happen after the fact. And even at the very beginning of my entry, at the entryway of of my struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice, a lot of the activists who had already been, Been seasoned in dealing with some of these issues One of their Main main, mm, Tenets of their belief Was not interacting with the media Was not having conversations with the media Was not wanting the media around filming things And I've spoken before Because we have read things before that sort of touch on The relationship that activists And media have or uh, Protesters and media have and I've spoken that Spoken about how I think that the media, just like electoral politics and just like a bevy of other things is an instrument that you want to be able to use to your advantage. But I think that in using that instrument to your advantage, you have to understand the pros and cons that come with it. You have to understand the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is that most of these people in the media are not necessarily aligned with you ideologically. They are not on the same side of the fence as you. They're looking for the story. They're trying to find, you know, if they're even around to ask questions or to investigate something, it's because they believe that it is something that people want to hear about, not necessarily because they believe that it's the right thing or it's what people should hear about. So that's sort of some of my perspective on the media aspect of what we read about. And then I think, I think the next thing that I would expound upon before we continue reading is this. When people's families are, when people, when when these events happen, people are shot by police or people die in custody, the family is treated in a criminal manner as well. The family is not treated in the same way that the typical murder victim's family is treated the family's criminalized the family's kept the family does not receive the answers in the same way that other murder victims families receive answers they the again it's a certain cycle that happens where it's unlikely if they'll be given the full amount of information as is given in situations when with other murder victims and it's because the the people who usually facilitate getting that information, who usually facilitate that that pro- these processes we're talking about are the state. And when the state is responsible for the person being killed, it's only so much that they can that they can facilitate some of these things or give information on some of these things without incriminating themselves. And I think that that's one of the other unique aspects of police terrorism that we have to be cognizant of when we talk about why the system has to change is that so many people are victims of this system. And this system has nothing set up to advocate or to assist those people who become victims of the system. Uh, all all outlets are just different for, you know, you want to file a police report, you want to file a complaint against the police, you got to go to the police or you got to go to some institution that's connected to the police. You want the police to be charged for a crime, you got to get the police to sign off on it. You know, uh, even in here, this they talked about earlier, we read on the previous episode about why states' attorneys are reluctant to charge these police officers is because of the relationship that they have with these police officers because they need these police officers to come and testify in courts and in, in court and to assist them with getting the convictions. And and so you just see the the lack of an of a outlet for or a lack of an avenue for people who are victimized by the state to be able to seek justice. Okay. Let's try to knock out one more section before we wrap this episode up much as they did on the last two days crowds had gathered near the street where michael brown had been killed and were rallying at the charred remains of the quick trip gas station on the evening of august 11 2014 night began to fall and the crowds grew increasingly angry as heavily armored police officers began threatening to deploy tear gas if they did not disperse After leaving the Brown family's press conference, I had driven across town to meet up with Netta and a handful of other young residents and soon-to-be activists outside the NAACP meeting and then asked them to direct me back into Ferguson. Quote, slow down, end quote. Netta urged as I whipped my rental car around a suburban side street. Quote, the cops around here don't play when it comes to speeding tickets, end quote. I probably should have known as much, but it was still just my first day in Ferguson. After I parked my car just up the street at the home of one of Netta's friends, we made our way toward the intersection of Nesbitt and West Florissant, where it appeared about three dozen people were squaring off against police officers. Quote, I'm under siege, end quote, said Donald Harry, the owner of a single-story house that sat at the corner of Nesbitt Street and West Florescent Avenue. Across the street stood dozens of residents shouting at the cops. A block in the other direction, behind Harry's home, stood armored police vehicles and an advancing line of officers. Harry was trapped in the middle of the chaos. The previous night, rioters had shot out the back window of the black SUV that sat in Harry's driveway. When he heard yelling and commotion outside and threatening declarations from the police officers, he got worried and left his house. Quote, I've got my family in here, end quote, Harry told me, pointing back at his home. I was jotting down the rest of his sentence when Harry grabbed me, shoving me sideways onto the ground and toward the shrubbery. The police had begun firing tear gas, and while my head was buried in a notebook, I hadn't noticed the canister that had landed inches from our feet. Soon the corner on which we were standing was engulfed in a cloud of tear gas. Covering my face with the collar of my sweater, I glanced behind me in time to see Netta clutch the top of her chest. Quote, Are they shooting us? Did I just get hit with something? End quote. She screamed. The rubber bullet that had struck her chest was now lying at her feet. We both started running back toward the car. Quote, I was just trying to get my sister's house. End quote. Cried one 23-year-old who lay sobbing on the lawn. I was just trying to get to my sister's house. Excuse me, I think I might have said that sentence wrong. He said he was walking home when officers approached him, sprayed tear gas in his face, and peppered him with rubber bullets. His friends pleaded with an ambulance to hurry and the neighbor offered to drive him to the hospital. Quote, I don't need a hospital, end quote, the man yelled. Quote, this is my home, end quote. The police aggression only further incited the crowd, with some lying in the street with hands in the air. Quote, don't shoot, end quote, they chanted. Others added, quote, go home, killers, end quote. Others fled, crying out for water as stinging tear gas bit at their eyes. While many residents of Ferguson had been deeply outraged by the violence and looting of the previous night, what upset them even more was the nightly militarized response of law enforcement. These suburban families weren't used to seeing officers in riot gear, which further ingrained the image of a hostile occupying force in the minds of residents whose support would have been vital for the police to maintain order. As the night wore on, residents who remained outside began to regroup. Many refused to leave the streets. Others were physically incapable. As police moved up West Florissant, many residents said they were trapped. The neighborhood consists of a series of cul-de-sacs with one main road stretching between them, and each one was now blocked by police. After running to the car for a bottle of water, I decided, despite Netta's warnings, to move back up toward the tear gas to see what was going on. As I made my way up the street, I ran into 25-year-old Edward Crawford. Quote, This is beyond Mike Brown. This is about all of us, end quote, Crawford told me, insisting that the reason he had come out into the streets was because he had previously been subject to traffic stops and searches and had felt he was harassed by Ferguson police because of the color of his skin. A young father who worked as a waiter, Crawford had joined the protest not long before the tear gas and rubber bullets were deployed. Quote, The looting was wrong, but so was this. This is excessive force end quote, he said as a tear gas canister landed just behind his feet. As I made my way back to my car for the final time, I ran into Crawford again. Two nights later, he and I would both be thrust into the national narrative as I would sit in a jail cell in the basement of the Ferguson Police Department. Crawford would again join the protest. This time, wearing, a, wearing an American flag tank top and eating a bag of chips, he would race to a canister of tear gas fired on the protesters and and in an act captured by the camera of post-dispatch photographer Robert Cohen tossed it through the air back toward the police officers. The image went viral, becoming perhaps the single most recognizable symbol from the Ferguson unrest. But tonight, Crawford was no symbol, and he was no hero. He was just a scared resident who was convinced that this aggression from the police might never stop. Quote, you're going to write your story, and you're going to leave town and nothing is going to change, end quote. Crawford told me it's the late hours of Monday turned into the early hours of Tuesday. Quote, one day, one month, one year from now, after you leave, it's still going to be fucked up in Ferguson, end quote. That brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter, so let's have a reflection. So, I think what stands out to me from what we just read is the militarization of the police. And, um, I think about the book I've read that's entitled rise of the warrior cop, the militarization of America's police force. And in there, they talk about the militarization of the police, not just in the, in the aspect of weaponry, but also in the, the, the mind state that the police have. And, I think that that is at, at its highest form af- when there is some type of social unrest, you begin to really see that the police don't stand with the people, that the police are an institution that is implemented to keep the people in their place, to keep the status quo maintained. And... The, I think one of the most challenging things to the acceptance of the status quo is when you see and witness state sanctioned violence. When you see, you know, when you're told all the time that if you steal, you go to jail. If you kill, you go to jail. You rape, you go to jail. Or you go to prison. You, well, you go to jail and you go through the process of being convicted and then going to prison. But when you're told that this, this is how this cycle or the system is supposed to work. And then when you see somebody who works for the state, circumvent that system, it a lot of times is the initial thing that leads people to question whether this system is just in the first place. And when you begin to look deeper into into the hypocrisies of the state, the hypocrisies of the system, you begin to see how often people who are affiliates or direct employees of the state operate above the law and don't have don't have the the same accountability that everyday citizens have and I think that again I say that the the civil unrest is the highest form of that because you see police officers shoot people with rubber bullets without without it being any type of threat you get you see you can see I, I use that specific example because we read about uh, someone being shot with rubber bullets but my point is basically you get to see, how these police officers use force against people. And it's not against these people that are committing these heinous acts. It's just against people as a tactic to make other people leave an area, or it's used against people as a tactic to make other people question being supportive of a protest or being supportive of a demonstration or being supportive of the issue. You know, you get to see it's the highest, it's the highest form of political repression, when these moments of civil unrest happen and these police officers come out and you get to really understand how, how the, you get to really view how the police department is an occupying force in, in our, in this, in cities. And a lot of times black people and people of color and people in poor communities see that firsthand more often because of the situations that they are in with the police department on a more regular basis or because the police are in their cities, in their communities, in their neighborhoods on a more regular basis. They understand the force that police officers are willing to use to be able to make an arrest or to be able to get in, get a conviction, conviction. But everyday people don't always see those things. And this might not always be a, a, a violent use of that force or it may not always be a, a brutal use of that force. Sometimes it can be through coursing of a, Coercing of a of a of a plea, please, not the word I'm looking for. Coercing somebody to make a statement or say that they did something, or coercing somebody to say somebody else did something. You know, you get to see some of the more subtle ways that these that the that the police force operate in a repressive manner when you live in the communities in the neighborhoods that they are doing these things in all the time. I think for in 2020 when after george floyd was murdered it being so many protests so much civil unrest and so much and so many uprisings in so many different places you began to see how how even in areas that may be far away from each other the police have the same militarized mindset you see how the police see something happening in one area and so they take extra steps to try to prevent it from be, being able to happen in a different area or in a different location and for a lot of people, I think seeing that use of force really opened up their eyes to. And for me, being on at May on May on May thirtieth, five days after George Floyd was murdered, being at a protest in Rockford, Illinois, watching police officers tase people that were unarmed, pepper spray people that was unarmed, I was shot with a pepper spray bullet in the face, unarmed, posing no threat. Seeing people be falsely arrested and seeing it happen throughout multiple protests that happened that went on during the summer really was a eye opening and and an awakening experience for me as well. And so as we read about people, as we read about people who are at these protests, people who are in Ferguson during this civil unrest, my. One of my biggest takeaways is How being thrust in those type of moments, in these protests, in these moments of civil unrest, in the area where it's happening at, being exposed to the way that police officers treat people and the force that they use is a lot of times the entry point for people to get more involved in the struggle and for people to want to organize and want to mobilize and for people to start questioning a lot of the things that they may have just accepted beforehand. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna wrap this episode up here, but on the next episode of Rock for Reading Daily, we are going to finish chapter one of they can't kill us all. So that might be a little bit longer of a of an episode. I wanna again remind people to please share this on whatever social media platform that you use. And we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police, terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I will holler at you tomorrow.